This is Ballot Vox, the pointer's coverage of the upcoming 2022 provincial and municipal elections. Reporting today, Sam Graywall. With the provincial election around the corner just six weeks away on June 2nd, there has been more and more information dripping out. Uh, I found about a few weeks ago around uh, around the March break that it seemed pretty quiet, but it, it seems to me that now the campaign is picking up a bit of steam, still a little bit slow, but some big announcements by the Liberals, by Stephen Del Duca, uh, the NDP and Andrea Horvath are, are stepping up their campaigns. They're getting more information about their key platforms out there. We've pretty much known for quite a while what Doug Ford and the PCs are running on and their strategy. But we have Chris Cochran with us from the University of Toronto. He's a political scientist and a regular uh, guest on Ballot Box who's with us. And he's going to unpack and he's going to unfold a lot of the latest around the provincial campaign. Chris, thanks so much for being with us. What have you seen in the last month since we spoke with you in March? Well, initially, we there was a poll which showed that the Liberals seemed to be making significant gains on the Conservatives and and largely at the expense of the NDP. But since then, it seems that uh, things have headed in the opposite direction for the Liberals, and they're back neck and neck with the NDP. And the Conservatives are quite a bit out in front, about thirty nine percent in the most recent poll. So as far as what the parties and where the, what the parties would want or where they'd want to be at this stage, it seems to me that the conservatives are in about as good of a position as they could imagine being, with uh, exactly around the target vote they need to ensure a majority government. And the liberals and the New Democrats are still back fighting neck and neck to sort of sort out their differences and figure out which of the two, and and hopefully for them not both, is going to be seen as the main anti-conservative party in the next election. Chris, we always hear the term strategic voting and it's bandied about and pundits like to talk about it as some sort of a, you know, a reality that that is sometimes that plays out. But have you ever seen in an election in Canada anyway, where so in in a more than a two party system, so we're not going to see this down in the States very much, even though there are sometimes strong independent candidates here and there. But in a country like Canada or other countries that have a more of a multi party system, Have you ever observed where strategic voting was really used successfully, where where a campaign by, say, two parties, in this case, it would be the NDP and the Liberals, was effective in in saying, okay, if the goal is to prevent a PC majority again from them getting a majority, and we've got to we've got to take away thirteen seats. So hey, the the Liberals have the best shot in these six or seven seats, and the NDP have the best shot in these six or seven seats. And it might be because of the you know the voting patterns or the demographics in that particular riding. It might be because you have a very strong candidate, whatever it might be. Have you ever seen any of this used with any measure of success? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question, and it's a bit of an open question. It's very hard to measure strategic voting. You know, we ask people which party did you vote for. Very often, they indicate that they voted for the party they most preferred, which indicates that they didn't hold their nose and uh, and vote for another party. And you know, I think you really put your finger on it in terms of the difficulty of strategic voting. You know, the fact is we don't have great poll level, district level uh, vote intention data in the course of an election campaign, and so it can be very difficult for the parties. Never mind 
and the voters to figure out, you know, what in their district is the most strategic vote in order to stop some outcome that they they most want to avoid. And so what ends up happening is people often look at national level polls or sometimes maybe provincial level polls to figure out which party they should vote for to stop some party that they don't want. And of course, that can lead you astray because what ends up happening is even if you see, you know, for instance, that the the liberals are the party most able to defeat the conservatives federally. And so you vote liberal instead of NDP. It may well have been the case in your writing that the NDP was the party most able to defeat the conservative candidate. So that really does put a wrench into a lot of the ambitions of strategic voters. In terms of direct answer of whether there have been cases where it, where it has worked, in my view, the the most compelling case seems to be the 2015 election, where if you look at what happened in Quebec in particular, and Quebec is sort of unique among Canadian provinces in that it does tend to vote as a block. And so you, you can see pretty big provincial swings in Quebec if, if everyone sort of shifts together. And, and one of the phenomena that really seemed to appear in that campaign was that initially the NDP were seen as the party most able to defeat Harper's conservatives. Uh, and that persisted through the early part of the campaign. And then as soon as the conservatives seemed to inflict considerable damage on the NDP in, in Quebec, the liberals really became the party that most people saw as having the best chance of defeating the conservatives. And a lot of votes did swing to the, to the liberals. So the NDP shortcomings in Quebec did seem to have the effect in other places as well of, of making the liberals the front runner. But again, that's partly speculative, partly uh, based on the data. But I think it is the best example of where strategic voting took place and goes to show you the number of factors that need to be involved in order for strategic voting to be effective. It's certainly not a winning strategy, it seems to me, on the whole. Chris, when you look at the Liberals and the NDP in Ontario, um, I'd like to get your thoughts on on this first. The decision by the Ford government to sign the $10 daycare agreement with the federal government, did that take the wind out of the sails of both the NDP and the Liberal Liberals on a, on a huge issue? Because not only is it about child care, but in this environment right now where there's so much concern about hyperinflation and the cost of living, like I see the PCs strategically, you know, using that agreement to not only address the needs of parents and just the pragmatic, practical need for affordable childcare, but they also now get to piggyback on that agreement by saying, hey, we're looking out for these rising costs, working families, young families. We just signed a deal to give you $10 a day daycare because we see that inflation is going through the roof. How do you see that playing out? I think it's you're exactly right. I think it would have been extremely risky for the conservatives to go into the next campaign, leaving you know frankly an elephant in the room for both the the, the liberals and New Democrats in, in terms of being able to offer affordable childcare paid for by the federal government. And so even though the provincial conservatives delayed certainly compared to other provinces in terms of taking the federal government up on the offer, uh, it's certainly not something they'd wanted to have campaigned against in the in the election. So it has taken. Uh, a major um, policy item from both the the liberals and new democrats in the selection and the conservatives have been uh, have been doing this for a while now. I mean, you know, we talk a little bit about some of their isolated policies. Childcare is obviously a huge policy, so we can't really call it an isolated one-off. But even if you think of something like reimbursing license plate stickers or taking the tolls off an area of the 407, those are small policies that 
aren't likely to have a major impact, certainly for the province and even for the people most be- who most benefit from them. But they do play into the broader narrative that the Conservatives are clearly running on this campaign, which is that they are the party of people who are concerned about affordability, which is ironic given that, you know, in, a, in, a, in a, an inflationary period with housing prices running away from uh, young people or, or many people looking to buy a home, that you would think it would be the incumbent government that would be would be blamed most for that and the opposition government's able to capitalize on but the conservatives it seems to me have done a, a pretty good job muting some of that blame by positioning themselves as the party of affordability despite being in charge when the affordability crisis has gotten worse and worse over the past few years and and when we switch gears and we really take a look at the NDP and the liberal strategy the campaign now that we're seeing some major policy announcements just this week Stephen Del Duca announced that if elected if if the liberals form government they will ban handguns so that's clearly a public safety a crime and safety tough on crime stance to push back against you know the conservative stronghold on those issues, especially uh, in the suburbs and and maybe uh, some more rural areas, um, we also saw just today an announcement by Stephen Del Duca and the Liberals that they're going to bring in measures to eradicate systemic discrimination from our education system and our policing system in this province. For example, in education, they said they're going to get rid of streaming. So this is a process whereby particularly black students, but visible minority students in general, were kept away from academic pathways that led to university. They were streamed into more of these vocational pathways, a very, very potentially harmful, controversial practice. But they say that they will eliminate that across the board. Where where do you see these things playing out like for the liberals to to address clearly like immigrant rich you know r- ridings ridings with large numbers of visible minorities uh and we see more and more of these ridings across ontario it's not even just in the gta when you look at the de- demographics and shifts you, you'll almost see every you know large and medium-sized city across ontario that has very rapidly changing demographics do you think this might be effective for the liberals and we can talk about the ndp as well yeah, my thought is that it it probably won't be effective in terms of in terms of appeal. But again, you know, I, I thought the same thing when when the federal liberals um, tried to make hay of gun policies. I mean, gun the gun debate doesn't have the same uh, impact in Canada as it has in the United States, where it's very clearly a cleavage. But if you look federally, when the liberals started to raise the issue of guns, it, it caused all kinds of problems for O'Toole, who was tripping all over himself in terms of policy commitments he was making in the debate on the one hand and versus what he was making privately to conservative supporters on the other. So these do potentially create a bit of a wedge for the conservatives. But I, I don't think it's going to be the kind of thing that rises to the top of the agenda for, for a lot of voters. I think it is going to be an election around the issues of affordability and opportunity. And I think there are certainly opportunities for both the Liberals and the New Democrats to to take advantage of that. But of course, if they if they misread it or they cede the affordability ground to the Conservatives, then I, I really don't think that this election is going to be a, uh, a great showing for them. Uh, one of them, it seems to me, has to pull away with the kind of policy agenda 
maybe even an ambitious policy agenda that is going to address the kinds of things people are worried about and thinking about. And so far, it seems to me that hasn't been as front and center yet anyway uh, for both liberals and their Democrats as it'll need to be to beat the conservatives. And the polls suggest that um, that view is relatively not majority shared, but widely enough shared that the conservatives are still by considerable extent the front runner. Chris, do you see anything bold, um, a little bit more creative, new from the NDP? Like we know that they have traditionally addressed affordable housing, for example. They're they're looking more and more at the long-term care sector and major problems that exist in that sector. I don't need to get into it. I think most listeners are quite familiar because of the pandemic with just how terribly managed the long-term care sector in this province has been and the tragedies that occurred because of that lack of funding, lack of regulation, just terrible. When you have to bring in the military, you know, in, in essentially an emergency measure to come in and, and help out with the long-term care sector, you know there's something wrong. So we know the NDP are going to look at that. Like I said, affordable housing. They've talked quite a bit about restoring a lot of funding in healthcare to things like autism, which was stripped away by the PCs once they took power. Other areas that impact young families, uh, a lot of newcomers, policies that traditionally try to advantage and benefit people who are in need of settlement services and support. But are you seeing anything that you take a look in and believe, wow, you know what, that could really gain them some traction and it could gain traction in the parts of the province where they really need to make gains. It's one thing to craft policy that's going to play well in ridings that are securely NDP. It's another thing to go out to places that you know are maybe liberal strongholds or even if it's a swing riding or it's currently been held by the PCs for a while. Are you seeing anything that is impressing you with the NDP? It's as you say, it's still a bit early, and and the, the there hasn't been a lot of attention on their on their policy pronouncements, and their web presence is is considerably less, it seems to me, than uh, certainly the conservatives, uh, but even even the liberals. I think there are real opportunities here for the NDP, especially considering the past few years of the conservative government. For example, Ontario has abysmally low hospital capacity. Canada does in general, but Ontario in particular. This has meant that the government has had to use lockdowns to protect the hospital sector, more so than any other jurisdiction in North America, in fact, in Ontario, and more than virtually any jurisdiction in, in the OECD. So we really don't have a great track record when it comes to keeping schools open. And a part of that has to do with just the vulnerability of our hospital sector. In 2020, this could be excused. You know, Nobody saw it coming. It was unexpected, that sort of thing. But when it's still happening, 2021, 2022, I think it's a real opportunity for, for a party like the NDP to talk about how the importance of investment in things like healthcare, it's not just about spending money. I mean, clearly that's not what the goal is. It's about allowing people to live their lives more normally than they could otherwise and also ensuring that people who need uh, access to medical care are able to get it even in the event of something unforeseen like a like a pandemic so that's an opportunity for them schooling is an opportunity for them the you know it's on the one hand we you can talk all we want about uh, investments that are being made in schools and the numbers of teachers hired and and so on and so forth but the reality it seems to me is that the, the government hasn't done a very good job at keeping schools open or allowing them to persist through the pandemic. And the evidence there, again, is the is the high rates of 
of school closures. And our educational outcomes are affected by having students move online, which has done all kinds of things that would be in the NDP wheelhouse, perpetuating inequities between students from different family backgrounds and so on. So there again, it seems to me is, a, is another real opportunity for the NDP. And of course, affordability in the housing crisis. I mean, this is something that I think the conservatives see as a sort of traditional conservative issue in the sense that it appeals to what we might call sort of pocketbook middle class voters, people who are concerned about their ability to maintain a, a particular standard of life or their ability to continue to, you know, their financial situation to continue to improve in the future. But it obviously has trickle down effects as well. If you have a housing crisis that prices people who are relatively affluent out of the out of the housing market they're looking at, then they move into the next sort of level of housing and it goes all the way down and eventually as we see it prices people in precarious or fixed income positions out of the housing market and that is a concern it seems to me not just to people who are currently in financially precarious positions or on fixed incomes but also for people who are going to be or who imagine themselves in the not too distant future to be in those situations so in my view there are a lot of opportunities for the democrats in in this election uh, also opportunities for the liberals and and uh, you know as goes without saying that what they need to do is capitalize on these be seen to be capitalizing on them and also emerge either before the campaign or at some point in the campaign as the party for people who don't want the Ford conservatives back in. And if neither the liberals nor the new Democrats can do that, then however successful they are at peeling voters off of the Ford conservatives, we will see as a result of our electoral system, the split voting and the conservatives likely uh, getting back in with a majority or significant minority government. Chris, what do you make of uh, quite recently, there's been some reporting from data that's come out of StatsCan and and from the federal government on employment and income numbers that, that have shown, you've probably seen the headlines that coming out of the pandemic now, we see that, for example, in Ontario, the sectors that saw the, the lowest percentages of like salary and income gains, so really did not see their incomes going up significantly far outstripped by uh, inflation, the rate of inflation. You know, we're looking at just this crazy report that's just come out at 6.7% inflation in March uh, in Canada. But when we look at those numbers and we realize that in Ontario, hundreds of thousands of voters who work in the public sector, so education, post-secondary education, in hospitals, other areas of the healthcare sector, other you know areas of, of the public sector, their, their wages, their incomes are simply falling further and further behind. They, they, they are not keeping up. And, and ironically, a lot of these sectors were identified in, in much of the recent reporting that was released as being the essential work that was done. Like these, these are the individuals who propped up our society during the pandemic, and they're the ones who are falling behind the most. Do you see an opening for the Liberals and NDP to take a look at, like, do we need to adjust our taxation, whether it's like corporate taxes or, or taxes, you know, for the highest income earners, the wealthiest, to offset what, what's clearly needed? And, and that's an infusion of money in the budget to, to make you know, incomes and salaries in Ontario in the public sector competitive. I was just talking to a doctor from the States uh, on the weekend, and he was telling me that what nurses are being paid in the United States, including many nurses leaving Ontario to go down, and I'm, I'm not kidding, to make $200,000 plus down in the U.S., 
we just and we know we know that that nurses educators others in the public sector they are leaving these jobs in droves what, what do you think the ndp or the liberals could do around that reality yeah, i think it's a it, it is a great point and and certainly with inflation as you imagine it's 6.7 percent but it's been consistently over five percent for a long time there's few sectors where you see wages keeping up with the price of inflation so the basic question you could ask people are you better off today than you were four years ago to use the famous quote from reagan a lot of people are going to you know either objectively or or subjectively say no they're not they don't feel that the the future is as bright as it was. They don't feel that their living standard is keeping pace. And those are all things that should work against uh, an incumbent. I think one of the challenges for the liberals and the new Democrats in terms of competing against the conservatives is that it can be difficult for them if they become sort of too closely associated with you know, one group of workers, especially public sector workers, who it seems to me are, for the most part, you know, at least seen to be friendly to uh, liberal and um, new Democrat parties. So in that case, I think they would want to maybe uh, be more general and speak as well to the plight of people who own restaurants, small business owners and others who've been severely affected by this, who are severely infected by inflation. Their their salaries of their employees are affected by inflation. And all of these affordability indicators seems to me would have to be sort of packaged together in, in the form of a comprehensive plan. And I mean, just again on, uh, you know, kind of initial impressions, but as a non Nonpartisan, detached observer. When you look at the messaging from the parties, it's really striking to me how far ahead the conservatives are, both the provincial liberals and the New Democrats, in terms of their ability to get their messaging out. And that's not my assessment of the conservative policies in any way, but it's remarkable to me on, on an issue. You know, we could talk about the positions of public sector workers. We could talk about the healthcare system. We could talk about housing affordability. The conservatives seem to have um, the more developed campaign positions on these issues, and neither New, Dem New Democrats nor the Liberals have really put themselves in a position yet, anyway, where they can they can take ownership. And you know, I think a part of it, and again, it's it's probably a multifaceted explanation, but a part of it, it seems to me, has to do with the fact that. At the federal level, for instance, uh, you know, Jagmeet Singh, even though he has an alliance now with uh, with Trudeau and the, and the Liberals to support each other, the federal NDP is calling this uh, Justin Trudeau's housing crisis. Yet property and civil rights are provincial jurisdictions. Provinces, the provincial government, in this case, Doug Ford, bears a significant responsibility for governing basically the housing stock in the province. And so the, the the fact that Justin Trudeau federally, less directly involved in housing, is wearing this now and Doug Ford provincially isn't, seems to me is a, is a communications failure of the, uh, of the liberals and the Democrats at this stage. Chris, when you mentioned the messaging and the amount of messaging being done by the PCs compared to the NDP and the liberals, I can't speak to the NDP per se, on what I'm about to get into. But with the Liberals, when they lost official party status, having slipped just below the threshold when they only won seven seats in 2018, it just decimated their coffers. The, you know, the, the party, the funds, the, the, the accounts are pretty much empty. And, and without the funding that you get as an official party, it's very difficult to, to resource and to finance, you know, a big provincial campaign in, in the largest province in the country. And I think we're seeing 
some of the consequences of that. The, the NDP, I'm not quite sure. Like maybe they just haven't started a lot of their spending. I haven't read a recent report. I, I, I read a few weeks ago about the, the PC war chest and how it, it was far larger. They, they, they've already fundraised and what they already had banked. They, they had way more money than NDP and like forget about the liberals. So I think some of what you mentioned is a reflection of that, that financial reality. But do you think the liberals and the NDP will see any sort of a rebound, particularly the liberals? Because clearly in 2018, a lot of the PC vote was not really a PC vote. It was a rejection of 15 years of the liberals. We, we know like the liberals were just decimated. You know, a lot of scandals, uh, pretty poor, you know, financial leadership, uh, a lot of problems. They, they clearly should not have been in power. They should have lost only because of major hubris and, and strategic, you know, mistakes by the PCs in the previous two elections. Did it even allow the liberals to stay in power that long? Do you think we'll see a balancing off of that, that that some of the the rejection vote, like the vote that was simply, we're not voting for the liberals again. Do, do you think some of that could fall away from the PCs, either back to the liberals or over to the NDP? Yeah, I think it's very, I, mean, I think it would be very unlikely for the liberals to do worse than they did in the last election, which is mentioned is an anomaly. And, and you're exactly right. The liberals survived a couple of elections that they should have lost by, you know, sort of the usual uh, indicators. But the PCs ran such bad campaigns that the liberals were able to hang on. And then it just collapsed all of a sudden in, in a single election. I think it's very possible and indeed likely that the liberals will rebound. I guess the question is, to the degree that people are primarily motivated by ensuring that the four conservatives don't continue in government, a liberal rebound would have to be very significant and come at the expense primarily of the NDP, it seems to me, in order for the liberals to position themselves to be that party that can unseat the conservatives. Alternatively, for the NDP to unseat the conservatives, I think a lot of the support that Horvath needs to get for the party is going to come from the liberals, which is why we're seeing, as you see in the policy announcements you discussed earlier, we're seeing there's this two levels of competition that both the liberals and the Democrats are engaged in. The first one is against each other, and then the second is against the conservatives. And and that makes life a little bit uh, a little bit challenging for them. So a liberal rebound could, in a perverse way, be very good news for the conservatives, as long as it ensures that there is no clear front runner alternative to them in this election. And again, this it seems to me raises longer term questions about precisely what it is that's motivating the liberals and the conservatives to maintain their differences, or how those could be justified on policy grounds. I think there are reasons for that. You know, you could make a rational case for why why they they should remain separate. But if it's going to result in continuation of a conservative government that both of them think is unpalatable or unacceptable, then uh, you know who knows what could happen after this next election if if one of them fails to make any kind of a breakthrough. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. That's uh, Chris Cochran, political scientist with the University of Toronto. And Chris will be back next month on Ballot Box. We hope the rest of you will join us next week for another show. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Ballot Box was hosted by Sam Graywald, produced by yours truly. Join us next week for continuing coverage of the upcoming provincial and municipal elections. I'm Jeff Chalmers. Thank you for listening. Talk to you then.